0: There's no greater power than the power that has cleansed us from our sins currently. No greater power. And it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Everybody doing well? Doing good? Had a good week? Yep. Yeah. Enjoyed worship? Yep. Yeah. If you didn't, I can have the drummer come back up. He had a little beat on oh, that wood song, it was kind of Toby Backish. You know. Do, do, do. Yeah, I was going in my seat, you did a great job today, so you did a great job. All right, turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 119, that's where we're at today, and this is the second part of a sermon that we started last week, so this is part two, so Psalm chapter 119, and what I want to do before we dive into the text exactly is I want to tell you how how I got here, okay, with, with this text. So last summer we did a Bible study through Psalm 119. It was online and uh, people watched it and um, we had a good time through it. Well, at least, you know, I don't know if we had a good time through it. I could just see a camera and I was hoping that the people on the other side of the camera were having a good time as we were going through the scripture. Anyway, Psalm 119 and I started thinking, well, maybe this should be a sermon next year. And so I started working through some things with it and, uh, Everybody generally knows, and if you don't know, it, it, it's in your English Bible, that Psalm 119 is in 26 sections, and each one of those sections is labeled by a letter out of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses is Aleph, and then nine through whatever it is, is Bet and Gimel and Delet and so on and so forth. So 26 sections and each one of those letters title each one of those sections. Well, if you look at it in the Hebrew, what you come to realize is that it is actually not only Aleph, but each verse starts with that letter in the first eight verses, and it's pretty incredible. So the, starting in verse 9, it starts with Bet, and every single verse starts with that letter in the Hebrew. You can't see that in English, but it's, it's really a masterpiece well put together. This is important Because if you read through 119 you really begin to think initially that it's just random thoughts about the word of God. I mean, you have the testimonies that he's thankful for, you have the law that he's thankful for, you have the word that he's thankful for, you have all this stuff that he's thankful for, and it seems to be kind of random. What brings you back to that it's not is the structure that that it has, this alphabetical structure in each section, in each verse begins with that particular letter. It's, it's pretty incredible. So in my mind... I start to think, well, is there more to this? So I I sit there, and so the first thing, one of the things I did, it's not really the first thing, one of the things I did was I thought, well, maybe not only does it go verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, but maybe each one of the first verses of each one of the sections, if you put them together, comes up with a thought, and if it is, that's what I'll preach. So I spent time with 26 verses across all the alphabet and put them in order and read them through, and it was a failure. So what I did, because I'm hard-headed, is I did it with verse 2. So I did verse 2 all the way through just to try to see if there was something to it and there wasn't anything to it. So then I thought, well, maybe I'm off on this. So maybe what I should do is go eight letters in Because each section has eight sections. And maybe the writer of scripture put eight down this way and eight this way. So it started going this way. Well, that was a a failure too. It didn't, yeah. And so then I started thinking about other things and other structures. I even looked, because this is how weird I get with it. I even looked at the Hebrew just to see if maybe the letters drew a picture. Maybe it was a picture of a cross or picture of something, you know, we could see a picture of something. Well, no, and actually that never happens, but I I still did it anyway. It was really a waste of time. So then, after wasting so much time doing all of that, I thought, well, maybe what I should do is just go back to what I know. Everybody that's ever preached this or taught this uh, section of scripture always talks about the word of God and the love for the word of God. And and maybe they're right. Maybe that that is the centralized theme of the whole thing. So I looked at it and yes, um, the word of God is is really referenced 178 times through the 106 verses. I mean, it's it's pretty astounding amount of times. And it's either word of God, testimonies, law or something like that is referenced all the way through. And I thought, wow, that must be the heart of it. But then I thought, well, maybe I should look at some other stuff and see if there's something else going on. So what I found was that the word of God is not the most used words in Psalm 119. Instead, it's first and second singular pronouns that are used the most in all of the scripture. For instance, it would be I, me, my, mine, or you, your, or yours. And all the way through the scripture from verse four, all the way to the end, uh, 176, I, me, my, mine, you, your, yours is used and they're used multiple times. In fact, I counted how many times they were used. They're used around 519 times. 519 times, that exceeds the amount of times that you hear about the word of God and and things of that nature. So what I realized at that point is that Psalm 119 is a very extensive you and I conversation that this psalmist is having with God. Not only did I realize that, but the psalmist is having this conversation and he is deeply, deeply in love with God and he's deeply in love with God's word. There is an amazing emotional affection that you read and you get when you go through Psalm 119 about this guy saying, I love you Lord and I love your law I love your rules. I love your statues. I love everything about what you have written, what you have given the prophets of old. I love it all. I deeply, deeply, deeply love it. And it's all the way through. And it's an extensive, effective, um, extensive emotional connection that he has with God and his word. It's, it's, It's absolutely incredible. So I started working on that a little bit, but then I had to stop. Because those two themes are not the only two themes going through Psalm 119. There's another theme. And that theme is the theme of problems and suffering and affliction. And 48 times throughout uh, 176 verses, this guy referenced issues that he's going through. And they're serious issues. And he says, Lord, help me in my affliction. And then he'll say, but I love your testimony and I love your words. He says, "Um, I'm going through suffering, but Lord, I love you and I love your testimonies and I love your words. So really the Psalm is not only a, a personal conversation between whoever wrote this and God, but it's a conversation about problems and how we should approach them. He is giving you an approach to how you should view your problems it's amazing so look at psalm 119 and let's look at some of these problems that he has okay verse 11 i have stored up your word in my heart that i might not sin against you how many of you have a problem with sin okay the rest of you have a problem with lying Okay, so how many of you have a problem with sin? That'd be everybody in the room. This guy says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Sin is a problem. I'm trying not to do it. I'm storing up your word and I love your word. Verse 21 says this, you rebuke the insolent and accursed ones who wander from your commandments. By the way, that means he's calling some people idiots. These people that are coming up against me, I do not like them at all, all oh, you take care of them, you rebuke them. I'm having issues with some people, with some relationships. Verse 22: Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies." 23: Even though princes sit and plot against me, your servant will meditate on your statues. Even though this problem is occurring, I am going to meditate on your statues. Notice verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Have you ever felt like your soul was clinging to the dust, like you were that sad? Yes, I have felt that way. Something comes up in your life and you just feel terrible. And he says, my, I feel like my soul clings to the dust. I just can't get any momentum. I just can't seem to get out of bed. I can't seem to get motivation And he says, but Lord, give me life according to your word, because I know that your word and your relationship with me is where I get life. Verse 28 says, my soul melts away for sorrow. Have you ever been so sad that you feel like you're just melting away? But then he refocuses and says, strengthen me according to your word. And we can continue and talk about the different things that he's struggling with over and over again. But what I want you to know is every time he's going through a struggle, he states the struggle and then he states his commitment to the word of God and his affection for the word of God. That's what he does. And so this Psalm right here is about this. It's where the real world and its problems meet a real God. It's where This world and its problems meet a real God. There is nobody in the world that will not say that problems are real, okay? They might struggle with God being real, but they will say that a problem is real. And this is where the real world and its problems meet a real God. So this is what often happens. What often happens in our life is that we center our life and everything we do around the particular problem or issue that we're going through. And so we focus on this. This is the problem. I need to take care of the problem. What am I going to do about the problem? In fact, our prayers are all about the problem. Lord, I've got this problem. Will you not do something about it? Lord, I need you to do something about it. Won't you do something about this problem? This problem just is on our mind. We, we eat and we think about the problem. We, we go to work and we think about the problem. We um, sleep, sort of, and we think about the problem. We wake up at the problem at night and the problem is just the center of our universe. If we are living like this, this is where the real world and its problems meet us, not God. It is where the real world and the problems affect us so much that it it just weighs on our soul and, and on our shoulders and it starts to bring us down. The Psalmist is saying this, I have problems, I have problems, but that's not the center of my universe. I have problems, but this is not going to overtake me. I have problems, Lord, but I love and delight in your word. I have problems, Lord, but I love you and I know you are amazing. There are problems, but Lord, those problems are small, minute, I have to get a microscope to look at them when I compare to the enormity of who you are. These problems are nothing really compared to your power and who you are. I know, I know that God is with me when I have issues and when I have problems and I focus on that and I center my life around that and I do not center my life around the problems and issues that come my way. I don't do that. I center it around God and it's a total different perspective. Total different perspective. So it's centered around God and nothing else. When the real world and the real problems that the world brings meets a real God, those problems are no longer powerful. No longer powerful. When the real world and real problems meet a real God, those problems have no victory over me. They have no power over me at all. Do I still feel them? Absolutely. The psalmist here is not saying that there's not problems. He's not saying that I'm not gonna recognize them and pray about them. He is saying they don't have power over me. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna center my life around God and his word and who he is and my relationship with him. And I'm gonna say, Lord, will you please take care of this? But listen, I love your word. I love your statues. I desire to know more about who you are according to the word i love the law i love it we have these problems sometimes in what we do as we often place our affections into the problems all this problem all this problem all this problem and we take our emotional currency and we just love the problem and we love the problem and we put a lot of emotional currency in this problem so so we're loving it and we're keeping it and we just take it with us everywhere everywhere we go and so then it doesn't become just a part of the center it becomes a part of our life and we just we just love it we love the problem and we're just going to focus on the problem all the time and we're just going to take it with us and love it and what we have done is the affections that we should have had toward God and his word, we have redirected them toward a problem. And that is really your problem. See, your problem isn't the problem. The problem is that you love the problem. The problem is that all your emotions and your affections are on this problem, and you're holding on to it, and you're trying to hold on to it rather than letting it go and move those affections toward a God who loves you and wants what's best for you and has the power to take care of that. Quit putting affections that you should have toward God toward your problems, put them toward Him and His Word. That is the point of Psalm 119. That's why it's repetitive. Lord, I love your word because the problem often says, oh, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. No, 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 no. I love God's word. I love God. You have to say it. You have to say it. You have to hear yourself say it. You have to believe it. You have to move in that direction. That is what you have to do. Verse 105 says this. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What is a light unto your path? The word of God is a light unto your path. You see, you should never let the problem guide your steps. You should never let the problem guide your steps. We often allow the problem and our emotional attachment to it to guide our steps. We get so emotional that we take emotional steps and before too long, the problem is guiding the direction that we're going in. And every time you allow your problem to guide your steps, you will go down a dark valley, you'll go into a dark tunnel, you'll go to a dark place and you'll never get a solution to your problem. It will get darker and darker and darker. So instead of allowing the problem to guide your steps, we allow God's word to guide our steps and God's word tells us how to deal with the problem. In fact, when you focus on God and you focus on his word and you have an affection for his word, a lot of the problems that you think are problems are not problems. It's just you being stupid. It's just you being ridiculous. It's just you addicted to the feeling that you get from loving your problem. I truly believe that there are people, and you know them if you think about this, that they are not happy unless they're mad. They're not happy unless they're upset. They're not happy unless they've got a problem because for some reason it infuses them with power. That means that their God is not the one true God. Their God is problems. Right? And your God should never be a problem. And your problems should never guide your steps. God's word should guide your steps. I used to say all the time, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So look for the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm here to tell you that was wrong. I am supposed to be the light in the tunnel. I have the word of God lighting my way through the tunnel. Why am I waiting to see some light at the end of it when God has already given me everything that I need to solve the problem and deal with the problem if I would only be affectionate and love his word and focus on his word and follow his word to solve the issues? Why am I following that when I know it takes me to a dark place? Why don't I go and get on my knees and get in his word and say, Lord, I love you. You've never failed me. Your precepts have never failed. Your ways have never failed. Your instructions have never failed. And I know right now, if I follow your ways and your instructions, I will not fail with this problem. In fact, you are taking care of that problem as I am being affectionate toward you. Come on, church. Come on, church. It's good. That should not guide my steps. You see, you and I need to change the way that we process life, life's events. We need to change the way we process life's events. Have you ever had that problem that you've had, you thought you solved it, then it comes back again, and then you thought you solved it, and then it comes back again? And you thought you solved it. And really every time that problem comes back up, you, emotionally you get worse and more upset. Have you, have you ever had that problem happen? Right? That means that you're not really solving the problem. What you're doing is your intelligence or the way you're thinking is still on the same level as your problem. So you've, you've entered a problem on a certain level of thinking and you're exiting that problem so to speak on that same level of thinking and you'll never really solve a problem exiting it on the same level of thinking as what you entered it. In other words, when you enter a problem at this level of thinking to actually take care of the problem, you have to think beyond the problem and on a different level than the level you are on when you first entered into the problem. Does that make sense? You have to think above the problem to get through it. So you enter this problem and you're like, okay, how can I approach this? How can I think differently? How can I think better? Because ladies and gentlemen, God has placed that problem in your life to make you more like him. To strengthen your faith, to strengthen your resolve, to teach you something. That is why God has put that problem in your life. And so if you enter a problem with the same level of thinking, you have not transformed into the image of Christ on the other side. And so that problem is going to reoccur and reoccur and reoccur until you decide to grow in your faith. And the only way that you can raise the level of your thinking is to be dedicated to the word of God and allow it to light your path. There is no greater truth. I think many times... We, we have faith in ourself rather than faith in God when it comes to the problem. And if you have faith in yourself to take care of the problem, you're not gonna take care of the problem too well. God is up in heaven saying, I wanna partner with you. I've given you my word. I've given you my love. I've died for you. I wanna be with you during this issue. And I'm going to help you through this problem. And so with him and his word, you gain a different way of thinking. And then you know what happens? Another problem comes that matches that thinking. And then you hold on to the word of God and you put your affections toward him and his word and you rise above in your thinking to that problem. And you know what happens? Those problems become very small and insignificant and you begin to realize that you're blessed by those problems that have come into your life because they have brought you closer to your savior. This should never guide my path. It should never guide my path. I cannot think on the same level. Some of us have marriage problems because we love the problem. We're being affectionate toward the problem. Sometimes in marriage, um, problems come up, and it doesn't—it doesn't get to where we're going to solve the problem. It it goes to a plane. Who is going to win in this issue? Women do this. Men do this. Men fight for control. And you can throw things at me all you want to, but women fight for control too. And if you say no, you're a liar. In a marriage relationship, people generally fall into fighting for control of the family, fighting for control of what they're about to do. And when you fight to win, when you fight for control, you are falling in love with that emotion because you're getting ramped up and maybe even more power will solve the problem. Maybe more emotion will solve the problem. Maybe being silent will solve the problem. And I'm telling you, that will not solve the problem. But if you take that affection and put it towards your Savior and who he is, It changes your heart and your view of that problem. It also changes your view of your spouse. She, in my case, is no longer somebody that I want to win against. She is somebody that I want to love and serve and lead to the best of my ability. It's a total different. I'm not going to try to win. It guides my steps. It guides what I say to her. See, many times when we are emotional and we're trying to gain control, we are not guarding our tongue. We're not guarding our tongue. We're just saying whatever we feel. Just to make the jab. I have daggers. I've got some daggers. Verbal daggers. Daggers. You know, when I unlock that safe is when I'm emotionally charged in the issue. And, buddy, I can let them fly. Look, Nicole can, too. My daggers are better. (laughs) (laughs) They're just better. She doesn't think as quick as I do, and she'll tell you that. Now, she's brilliant, so don't. Don't let all that, because I'm stupid to throw daggers. Do you understand? I mean, there's some, a stupid level there. But, man, I've got some daggers. i got some good ones. And, you know, I've prepared those for years. I've been married 25 years. I have an arsenal. Oh, come on, you do too. You know every weakness that your spouse has, and you're just waiting. Right? And you're just waiting for that time to do. And if I allow my problem to guide my steps, I'm going to use those daggers. However, if I allow the word of God to guide my steps and my actions, I will treat her as Christ treats his church and gave himself for her. Wow. That means that my words are not going to be the daggers that will try to win the day. It will be loving, and we'll actually deal with the problem, but with God as our center. And guys, our leadership can bring the lady to that point as well. And ladies in the room, I am not underestimating your leadership in the family when I say that. But in Scripture, the man is the spiritual head of the home. And you can debate that all you want to with me, but you're going to lose. And the wife supports that. She is the helpmate in that. Are they equal? Is there women that are smart? Absolutely. Are there women that are capable? Absolutely. But guys, we are the ones that have to bring that particular thing to the center and try to guide our wives to it. Now it's not this, honey, did you hear what the pastor said today? Don't do that. (laughs) Sometimes the only way you can lead her there is to model it. Sometimes the only way you can bring her there is to pray for it. Sometimes the only way you can get there is to, is to just do what the word of God says and let it light your, your way. She will see it. Ladies, I'll tell you, you're the most powerful person in your husband's life. Hands down, the most powerful person in your husband's life. And I will tell you this, the times that Nicole has centered the problem on the word of God and the way God wants her to handle herself, is the moment that I feel ridiculous for my affections about the problem and trying to throw my daggers. And that's the moment that I come because we are married to people that are supposed to help us in our spiritual walk, not hinder us in our spiritual walk. And our first affection is with God and his word and then it guides our steps and it helps us handle the problems and the issues that we have. That is the way that you do it. I think that we're sometimes just uncomfortable with what this arena feels like. We, we feel maybe weak, right? We feel like maybe we're a loser, like in, in doing it the loving way, in doing it as Christ loved the church. But Scripture also says that when you're weak, God is strong. And who is really supposed to be in control anyway? God. And aren't you glad that he's available to you to help you in all of that? Amen. Absolutely. So don't do this because you look ridiculous. Don't let the problem guide your steps. You look absolutely ridiculous letting the problem guide your steps. Right? Or if it guides your steps this way. Right? Don't let that guide your steps. In fact, let God Guide your steps so the problem will be gone. Amen. So the problem will be gone. Now, <clears throat> sorry, that's allergies. Don't get concerned. <laughs> okay, just let me you know. No temperature, no nothing. There is pollen, and for some reason, pollen wants to unite with me to create another tree. I don't know what it is, but that's, that's what it does. All right, I ran across this this week. And I just thought, man, I, I just need to share this. This is from BibleInfo.com. And I'm not going to share it all. I'm just going to share about five of these. And it's problem solving according to scripture. The reason this is important is because there's people, and I know you may have thought this too. Some of you might have thought this, you might not have, that says, Oh my goodness, Philip, you, you preachers, I have a problem, and all you ever say is go to the Bible. I I don't understand that. I bring you, I bring you something, you say go to the Bible, and it just seems so insensitive. I mean, can't you feel my pain? Don't you really understand the problem I'm going through? It's like putting a square peg in a round hole. I mean, what in the world? I don't even know what you're talking about when you say, go to the word of God. And I would submit to you today that um, maybe, maybe the reason that God wants you to go to his word is because he wants his word to be a distraction from your problem. So he says, go to, your, go to my word, but the word doesn't speak to my problem. Well, why don't you just take a moment and let God and his word be a distraction from your problem? Because what you are doing is you are allowing the problem to be a distraction from his word and him. So why don't you flip it around and go to his word? And even if it doesn't mean anything for your problem, maybe that's the point. Maybe God is saying, this is more important Then this little problem over here, who didn't do the laundry, or who didn't, or who didn't, or whatever it is, maybe this is more important, so let it be a distraction. But this has some scripture in it, and this is paraphrase scripture, so I want to let you know that. And this is what it says, the first principle of problem solving is to get the facts, The first principle of problem solving is get the facts. That means you don't jump into something. Oh, if our culture would get the facts before they riot. Come on. If our culture would get the facts before they get emotionally invested in whatever it is. If our culture would get the facts and wait and be patient and wait for the facts to come out before they acted, it would solve a bunch of our issues. I know people are saying love, and I know people are saying this and that and the other, but honestly, if our country would just wait to get the facts before we moved, it would solve a lot of our issues. We are so emotionally charged with the problem that we fail to see the facts that are right in front of us. It's also difficult to get the facts, right? It's di- very difficult to get that. I read news from Europe in order to figure out what's happening in America. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, and this is a paraphrase, says this What a shame. Yes, how stupid. To decide before knowing the facts. That's pretty powerful. So God's word says, know the facts before you jump. Don't get emotionally involved until you know the facts. And then let the word light your path. Here's the second one. How does God want us to respond to problems? Well, he wants us to realize that problems are inevitable and grow us as a result to them. In other words, we have problems in order for us to grow in our faith, in our relationship with him. James chapter 1, verses two through four says, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers, "'whenever you face trials of many kinds, "'because you know that the testing of your faith "'develops perseverance. "'Perseverance must finish its work "'so that you may be mature and complete, "'not lacking anything.'" It is problems that allow you to not lack anything. It's problems that bring you closer to God. It teaches you stuff. Um, number three, problems are confirmation that we are being prepared for heaven. Problems are confirmation that we are being prepared for heaven. I don't want you to say amen, I'm not trying, but I'm gonna repeat that. Problems are confirmation that we are being prepared for heaven. That should change your view of problems. Problems are confirmation that we are being prepared for heaven. God is preparing you for heaven. Now, this isn't salvation. If you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're already in. You're already there. You're good. But problems prepare us to get to heaven. Listen to 1 Thessalonians, actually 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. It says this. This is only one example of the fair, just way God does things. For he is using your sufferings to make you ready for his kingdom. He is using your sufferings to make you ready for his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Problems are used for that. The fourth one. Do you have a hard time solving your problems? God will help. James chapter 1, verse 5. If you want to know what God wants you to do, Ask him, and he will gladly tell you, for he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. But when you ask him, be sure that you, are, you really expect him to tell you. <laughs> when you ask him, be ready for him to answer you. Right? Right? For a doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And every decision you then make will be uncertain as you turn first this way. And then that. If you don't ask with faith, don't expect the Lord to give you any solid answer. You ask God for help. And you expect by faith that he is going to give it to you. That The whole Psalm 119 is this guy doing that. He asked for help in his affliction. He asked for him to, to help with that. And God answers him. And then finally, trust in God rather than self for guidance. You cannot trust yourself. I want you to say that. I cannot trust myself. Okay, let's say that again because some of you don't believe it. I cannot trust myself. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself, but I'm trying to say that you can't trust yourself. You can't. Your heart is just like mine. It's desperately wicked, and who can know it? And when I trust myself, I'll wind up giving affections toward problems that I shouldn't give affection toward. The only thing I can trust is God and his word. You cannot trust yourself. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 4 through 6 says, If you want favor with both God and man and a reputation for good judgment and common sense, then trust the Lord completely. Don't ever trust yourself. In everything you do, put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. That sums up psalm 119 i am not going to trust myself to handle this problem but i love god and i love his word and i am going to use his word to guide my steps in order to tackle this issue but this issue is not going to be the main thing it's going to be secondary it's not going to take control of me is everybody good So I'm going to end with this, okay? The best way to escape a problem is to solve it. And the best way to solve it is with the word of God lighting your way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stage you've given us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it does light our path. Lord, I pray The people watching and the people in this room, if they are allowing their problems to guide their steps, that in this moment, they'll make a commitment to you and to your word, and a commitment to follow you and your word and focus on you rather than their issue. It's not that they'll ignore their issue. Because it will still be there. But it will not become the center of their life. So I pray, Father, for that tenacity to make that decision. I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will help them have the strength to do that. And they will walk out of here today saying, Lord, I love you and I love your word. Lord, I love you and I love you. Your statues. I love your Bible. I love everything that you've said to me, and I love you. I pray that everybody in this room will make a commitment that, to the best of our ability, we will not allow our affections to go toward anything else, especially problems, but we will make sure that all our love and our affection will be focused on you. Pray this for me. I pray this for everybody watching. I pray this for everybody in this room. That you will help us do that. I pray that this week that people will read through Psalm 119 with all of this in mind, and that you'll speak to them, and that as they read through it, that they'll fall, in more, they'll fall into love more with you and more with your Word. And so we ask. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's stand and sing this closing number. The altar is open. I'm here as well to pray with you if you need that as we sing.